Yeah, if you would turn the Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and 22, or uh, page 1,000 in the Word, and that few Bible in front of you there, so we've been going through the book of Exodus. Uh, Kevin's been taking us through that. It's been an awesome series. Uh, since he is out today, we're stuck with a third string preacher. Um, and we're going to be in Revelation just for one Sunday. So um, just to give a little bit of background on the book of Revelation and what's happening here. Uh, in the book of Revelation, what we've got is we have John. Uh, one of the original 12 disciples and the beloved disciple who wrote the fourth gospel. He is exiled on the island of Patmos for bearing testimony of Jesus Christ. And while he's in Patmos, it's around the year of A.D. 95, uh, John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath. And then he hears a voice like a trumpet behind him saying, John, write everything that you hear in the book and send it to the seven churches. The seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He turns around to see who's talking to, naturally, because I've never heard a voice like a trumpet, but if I heard one behind me, I'd turn around. And when he does, he's immediately taken up in a vision and he sees Jesus. This is what he sees. He sees the Son of Man standing among seven lampstands. And he fears, right? He's terrified. He falls at, it, falls at Jesus' feet as if he were a dead man. And this is Jesus' response to him. This is chapter 1. You'll have to go back here. It says, Fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And so after this, John begins to write everything that Jesus said. The first thing that he starts writing is Jesus starts giving a message to each of these seven churches. And so we're going to be looking at the seventh church, and by far the one that's in the worst shape, and that's the church at Laodicea. So if you have the scriptures, read with me, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What counsel you buy from me, gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, then I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I ask that as we, as we read and as we study your word together, Lord, that my words would, uh, Lord, that you'd cause them to be forgotten. Uh, but Lord, may your words, Lord, may your words be transformed. Lord, today, may people hear your voice. Lord, may we see our words in this letter to the church of Laodicea. Lord, may we take your warning against the 
seriously. Lord calls us to be humble, to see ourselves. Lord, if there's any in here that are according uh, believers that are embracing a false gospel, Lord, will you renew them in the truth of your gospel, or in your salvation? Lord, if there's anyone in here today who has never received your gospel, Lord, today may, may they seek clearly. Lord, we love you. We ask all things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so just a little background on the city of Laodicea. Laodicea, again, one of the seven churches that John is writing to here. Uh, and all of these seven churches are located along modern-day western Turkey. Uh, this was a Roman province, and so uh, this city existed at the crossroads of three main Roman highways. So it became a, a large center for trade, for finance. This is a city of incredible wealth. Uh, we have uh, recordings of a, an earthquake taking out most of the city and Rome offered them money to rebuild their city. They turned it down uh, to show how wealthy they were. This is a city that was doing quite well for themselves. Not only were they wealthy, they also had a famous medical tool at the time that was known for its ISAP. It could supposedly take away uh, eye sorts. Uh, also, they had a very large wool industry. Uh, they were known for their black wool. And so this city was incredibly wealthy, uh, very, uh, very well uh, known across the modern world. And here Jesus is giving them a very hard word. But first, let's look at how Jesus identifies himself. He identifies himself as the Amen and the faithful and true witness. Then he says that he's the beginning of God's creation. So let's take those one at a time for a second. The Amen. The Amen is clarified by that second phrase there, the faithful and true witness. Jesus is saying on the front end of this letter to this church before he ever talks or before he ever says anything else to the church about their condition or what he recommends to them, Jesus starts off by verse 4 foremost saying hey, I'm the faithful and true witness. Whatever I say is unquestionably true. What Jesus says is 100% true. He is the standard of truth. But he goes on and says uh, that he's the beginning of God's creation. All right, now I want to be careful there and make sure we understand this is not to say that Jesus was created, right? Jesus is God and by nature of being God, he has no origins for it. Uh, Jesus has always been and will always be. So what he is saying, I think the beginning of all of God's uh, creation, is he's just echoing, he's echoing what Colossians 1.16 says, uh, that all things were created by him, and for him. Alright, so he's telling his church, hey, I'm the faithful and true witness. Everything that I said is unquestionably true. Oh, and I'm also the beginning of God's creation. Everything that you see is here because I created it. And that means that whatever you have and whatever exists in the entire span of the universe is mine. It was created by me and it was created for me. That means that every speck that exists in the entire universe was spoken into existence by Jesus and it was created to glorify Jesus. Everything in the universe owes its existence to him and exists to glorify him. That includes me and you, that includes our stuff, that includes our money, our time, everything that we have, everything this church has belonged to Jesus. Then he goes on in verse 15 and he begins uh, his, his diagnosis of this church. Starting verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm, 
and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. All right, now this would have really resonated with the church of Laodicea, and here's why. The church of Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, got their water supply from a hot spring six miles away. And this hot spring, by the time the water got through an aqueduct six miles to their city, it was lukewarm, and because of the calcium carbide in it, it made them nauseous when it was lukewarm. They constantly battled a water problem. And so Jesus here says, you're lukewarm, and the way you make me feel is nauseous. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say that he's just angry. He says that he's nauseous. He wasn't indifferent to their indifference. This church had become lukewarm and unconcerned about spiritual things. Their devotion to God had become half-hearted at best. Jesus says, oh, that you would be either cold or hot. And the reason why is because very simply, Jesus doesn't mind dealing with people who are ice cold. And he loves dealing with people who are red hot. He loves saving people who openly and even hatefully reject him, right? We look back at the Apostle Paul and his conversion from Saul to Paul. Jesus is not afraid to work with those that outright reject him. And he loves to work with those who humbly love him. But the people that are indifferent, the people that are right there in the middle, are in particular danger. And it's because they've heard just enough of the gospel to be somewhat inoculated by it, right? They're just kind of numb to it. Jesus says, this makes me nauseous. Because it's kind of paradoxical, right? Like, religion either means everything or it means nothing. Uh, you either believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, it means that you have to stake your life on it. Uh, it, it's the most illogical thing in the world to say that you believe in Christ and ultimately your actions don't show that you care. Uh, that It makes no sense and it makes Jesus nauseous. Christianity in word but, in, but not in deed is useless. So I think about lukewarm water, right? I can't think of a single use for lukewarm water. We either need water to be really hot or really cold. Things that are lukewarm, things that are half-hearted are useless. So next thing we'll look at is the cause of their complacency. We understand they're lukewarm. Next thing we want to know is why are they lukewarm? How did they get there? So in verse 17, Jesus tells us. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. The first time she noticed the difference in how they view themselves and how Jesus viewed them. Right? Jesus already said, I'm the faithful and true witness. Jesus sees them very clearly. They don't see themselves very clearly. Right? The, the church at Laodicea was quite comfortable. Uh, I think that they probably felt like they were doing okay. And Jesus lets them know up front, no, 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 you've deceived yourselves. In saying, I'm rich, I'm in need of nothing, he's telling them, now you're actually a mess. He says, you're poor blind, pitiable, and naked. He is a man. He is the true and faithful witness. So what was their issue? Their issue was, was that because they had a tremendous amount of wealth, they had gotten to a place where they didn't feel like they needed Jesus for anything. Right? Their, their wealth had allowed them to be comfortable and to become self-reliant. And this is what money does, right? At least that's what I hear. Money can do for you. It you know, makes you self-reliant. Um, but it make them self-reliant. Uh, and hear what Jesus says uh, in Matthew 
19, 23 through 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person in the kingdom of heaven. That's a hard word. Why is that? Is the issue money? Like, is money evil? No. Money is not evil. To have money doesn't make you a bad person. What Jesus is trying to convey here is that wealth has the unique ability to make you feel powerful like you have it together. Right? As human beings, we don't like to feel powerless and we certainly don't like to be in need of anything. Right? We spend our lives trying to do whatever it takes to get security, to get comfort, uh, to be established, to protect ourselves from anything that could go wrong. And money brings that power. Right? If we have enough money, then certainly we can handle any problem that comes our way. That's the lie that we hear. And so... We see this in our culture, this massive push, even when kids are just in uh, you know, the, the younger ages of school, right? Uh, we're encouraging them to make as much as they can, do whatever they can, because you're going to need money. We want security. We want, uh, we want comfort. We want to be established and protected. Wealth alleviates need and brings a degree knowledge. And so here's the problem with that. Right? It creates a unique spiritual problem is that if we don't feel like we're in need for anything, then we shut out Christ completely. Now, I, I'm just spitballing here, and maybe, maybe you guys are better off uh, than you let on, but I don't know if there's any of you this morning that woke up before you came here and were like, man, you got enough money, I just really don't need Jesus for much. Maybe. But I don't know that I would say my issue is that I have too much money. Yet I still find myself being very self-reliant. See, as Americans, we hardly need wealth to make us believe in ourselves. We're very quick to run to just about anything. Right? Uh, we're very, very quick to throw our spiritual resumes at Jesus. We're very quick to try and add to what Jesus says He's already done because we are, by virtue of being people, we like to earn things. We like to feel like we have something to contribute. And that's the root of their problem, right? The root of their problem is not money. The root of their problem is not they have believed a gospel that says it's Jesus plus something else. Right? They, they believe the gospel that says uh, it's Jesus plus what I have to offer. My, my wealth makes me more acceptable than Jesus. My question is, what do you think makes you acceptable to the Lord? What is it that you're, you're telling yourself makes you more acceptable? Like, is it, is it the bank account? Is it physical condition? Is it your family? Uh, is it how well your kids are doing? Whatever. Is it the retirement account? What is it that you feel like makes you more presentable to the Lord? The behavior, church tenants, time? Jesus knows me about self reliance. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, dealing with a similar issue. Galatians 1 6 through 8 says this, I'm astonished. You are so quickly deserting him who called you and the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you're seeing, let him be accursed. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's the reality. You and I have absolutely nothing to offer God that makes us any more acceptable. Left to ourselves, we have absolutely nothing to bring before Him that He's impressed with. Nothing. He's nauseated by this church. And it's not because they have money. He's not mad at them being wealthy. Jesus is nauseated because some they have something to offer. Here's the reality is that even as believers, we have to resist every single temptation to lean on anything other than the grace of God for our salvation. We have to resist it every time. Believing that they somehow have something to contribute to their salvation and make them lukewarm, they are useless. And see, here's the reality, is that the harder we work to add to the grace of God and what He's done, the less effective we become as a church. Right? Whenever, whenever we believe that we have something in of ourselves to contribute to what God's done, we actually become lukewarm. When we dilute the gospel or try to add to it or take away from it, we become diluted ourselves. Our works become lukewarm. Our faith becomes lukewarm. Any deviation from the gospel makes us useless. Next thing I want to look at, what does Jesus advise them to do? Alright, so we talked about the fact that their, their self-reliance was the problem. Not their will, but the fact they had something to offer. What did Jesus advise them to do? Look, look at verse 18. Says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Alright, so what's Jesus saying here? Let's break this part one time. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Alright, what Jesus is offering here to this Laodicean church is the opportunity to embrace his salvation for them. Right? He's offering them the opportunity to lay down their best efforts. Quit trying to earn it. Pick up the salvation I'm offering you. And he offers the salvation in three parts, right? There's three components to the salvation that he deals with here. The first component is gold refined by fire. Now, gold refined by fire is often used in scriptures and metaphor for faith. First thing that Jesus is offering them is faith. That seems a little weird, uh, you know, coming, you know, in the, in the Southern culture and my background. Uh, I kind of grew up thinking faith is what I contribute to God's saving process. Faith is my meeting God halfway. Uh, it's, you know, it's me helping Him out. But Jesus says, no, you need to buy from me faith. Uh, Ephesians 2.8 says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. Even the very faith that saves us is a gift of God. Jesus says, if you want to come to me, if you want to really find the salvation you're looking for, you've got to have faith. And this kind of faith, you can't muster up on your own. It's not something you create. This faith comes from me. Same thing he offers. He offers them white garments so they may cover themselves and hide their nakedness. Now, the first place that came to mind whenever I hear white garments, she may 
clothe yourselves. And I go to Revelation 7, verse 13. And it's a picture of the multitude bowing down before Jesus. So John says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulations. They have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Right? The, the natural tendency of the human heart is that when we're confronted with our own sin, our first response is to try to get a fig leaf, right? Genesis 3, Adam and Eve immediately see what they've done. They felt the shame of their nakedness, and their first response is not to cry out to the Lord for salvation. It's, well, let me fix this, right? And so Adam and Eve's first response is, I'm going to sow together fig leaves. And it didn't work very well, right? God shows up and immediately knows what they're doing. The fig leaves weren't fooling. I mean, less, you know, last time he left them, they were naked, for starters. But he gets back and they're wearing fig leaves. And it wasn't working. See, we do the same exact thing. The, the church at Laodicea was using their wealth to try and cover themselves. And, and we do this, right? It doesn't have to be with wealth. Like I said, we, we can cover ourselves in our sin. When we are confronted with our sin and we feel the shame of that, we can cover ourselves or try to in any number of ways, right? Whether it's our performance at work, how well relationships are going, or how we're doing financially, whatever it is, we try and justify ourselves in any number of ways. And we think we're pretty good at it. And Jesus says, no, you're naked. And so he advises them to buy white robes from them to cover their shame. And this brings us to the third thing. The third thing he offers them. He says, uh, he says, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Have you noticed here what he's done? He's, he's already talked about their will. Like Jesus is intimately knowledgeable about this church. Right. Sometimes the view of God that we have is kind of distant and maybe sort of kind of knows what's going on, but not really. Jesus knows all about this church. He's talked about their water supply, right? He's already called them lukewarm. Then he brings up the fact that, hey, uh, you're blind and naked, so you need to buy from me white robes, right? They're known for their black wool supply. He's offering them white robes. And then he says, no, no, you need to buy salve for me so that you may see. Here's, here's this city that thinks they have it together because they have a, a medical center with eye salve. And Jesus says, no, 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 your salve's not good enough. Why do they need eye salve so they can see? The reason they need eye salve is because of this. Any degree of self-reliance is due to self-deception. Right? Anytime that we bring ourselves to a place of relying on us, for any part of our salvation, whether the initial saving act or being sustained in that salvation, to rely on us is stupid. Right? If we see us for what we really are, there's no chance we'll rely on us. We deceive ourselves, and that's the only way we can ever think that we have anything to offer, is because we're clueless. Jesus says you're blind, you're deceiving yourself. Come and buy from sad to annoy your eyes so that you can see. And see, here's the unique offer of the gospel. Nothing else makes us offer us. In the gospel, we have the opportunity to come and take an honest look at ourselves 
and experience joy and freedom. See, the, the world tells us and our natural inclination is to ignore the bad parts of us and magnify and broadcast the good parts. Right? We want people to see what we do well and we want us to see what we do well but we will avoid talking about the ugly parts of us at all costs. The gospel gives us the invitation to come and see who we really are, to come and actually see our sin condition for what it is. But then we have the opportunity to have freedom and unshakable joy in that. And here's the reason why. is because the righteousness that he's offering here is not a modified version of their righteousness. Jesus is offering a righteousness that comes completely outside of them. See, if we think that our salvation depends in any degree on us, then we can't afford to look too hard at ourselves. If we think that salvation is aided in any way by anything I have going on, I cannot bring myself to be honest about the things that I don't do very well. I can't bring myself to be honest about the darkest places in my heart. Because then my salvation is shattered. I have to hide. I have to deceive myself. Jesus says, no, come by sacrament that you can see. You can see yourself honestly and still experience freedom and joy because our salvation doesn't depend on us. I love this quote from a guy named John Bunyan. He was a, a pilgrim, or, excuse me, sorry, Puritan pastor. Puritan pastor. Uh, and I heard this quote not too long ago, and I just want to quote it perfectly here. He said, I was all the while ignoring Jesus Christ, going about to establish my own righteousness, and would have perished, had not God in mercy showed me more of my state by nature. One day as I was passing in the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, I saw with my eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand, there I say, that's my righteousness. So that wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, He lacks my righteousness, for my righteousness was standing before And I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself. Now did my chains fall off my legs. Indeed, I was loose from my afflictions and irons, and I went home rejoicing through the grace and love of God. See, the righteousness that Jesus is offering us isn't inside of us. It's nothing in us that God's trying to, to say, well, you know, I'm going to work with you to better your own righteousness so that you'll be more acceptable before me. God and Ray Orland has this saying. He says, the gospel is God saying, hey, you go and watch this. We're going to change the subject to get off. Okay? We messed this up. We have nothing to offer. Jesus has everything to offer. But there's this phrase that he keeps reiterating throughout this, right? He says, uh, let's see, verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, white garments, Sabbath, and dry. What in the world? Why would Jesus say that we have to buy something? Seems a little bit uh, contrary to what we've been saying here. Jesus is alluding to an answer that he's already given in Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Here's what he says Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. 
Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast and sure love for David. You don't know the price of the salvation that Jesus offered. His price is for you to come with absolutely nothing. That's what Jesus demands. He says, you want to come and buy for a minute? Come and buy with no money. You want to have this salvation that I'm offering you? Come have it, but you can't bring anything with you. It's the complete opposite of the gospel we so often believe. It says, Jesus' grace extends so far, and it's my job to take it the extra mile. It's my job to meet him halfway, right? Where the red fern grows theology. Have y'all seen that movie? It's one of my favorite lines from the movie, just because it, even as a kid, it kind of irritated me a little bit. He says, Sometimes you just got to meet God halfway. Sometimes you just got to meet God halfway. And we're so quick to fall back into that thought. I've got to meet God halfway. I keep messing this up. I've got to do something to get back on his good side. Jesus says, No, no, no. Listen, when you buy that gospel, you lose the gospel completely. When you say Jesus plus my works, Jesus plus my bank account, Jesus plus, you know, whatever, you fill in the blank. Jesus says, when you try to add anything to what I have already said to be finished, you lose it. Not in the sense that you're not saved anymore, but you've lost the heart of the true gospel. Jesus says, come and buy for me. Buy with no money. Literally says you have to come as an empty-handed beggar. The gospel of Jesus Christ is only for those with nothing to offer. Let's go to verse 19. So those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now the first thing I want you to notice here is the character of our Lord. Right, I don't know what image you have in your mind of who Jesus is, who God is, and how he interacts with us. But it's an incredible sign of undeserved grace that God would look at this church that was close to having his candle extinguished. And he said, I'm about to speak you out of my mouth. If there wasn't hope, they wouldn't be included in this book. Right? Jesus, completely undeserved grace, comes to them and says, be zealous and repent. It's not over. You haven't lost your shot. Psalm 86, 15 says, The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding steadfast love. That's the God we serve. It may not be the God that you have in your mind, but it is the living God. Second thing we see here, and this gives us a glimpse into the nature of repentance. He says, Be zealous and repent. Literally, the idea here is it's not enough for you to just reject a false gospel that says Jesus plus something. True repentance is not just turning away from something, it's turning to something else. <coughs> Jesus said you have to turn away from this false gospel you've been believing. And then you have to turn and zealously cling to this gospel. The reason sometimes our prayers are so, or our repentance is so ineffective is because we like to think that repentance is just turning away from the bad things that we're doing. And in reality, true repentance is turning towards the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repentance 
is twofold. The next thing I want you to see is the promises of Jesus. The promises of Jesus. Verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and meet with him. He would make him. All right, let's stop there for a second. All right, this is often taken as an evangelistic passage, right? A passage meant for people who already don't believe the gospel. But we need to be reminded that Jesus is writing this to people who already have the gospel. This is a church. That's not to say that everyone in the church is saved. No more than it's to say that everyone in the American church is saved. But we shouldn't assume they're all lost. So why would Jesus say, I stand at the door and knock? If anyone hears my voice and comes and opens the door, I'll come in anyway. And I think it goes back to that first point that we And the reality is that whenever we try and add anything to the grace of Jesus, we shut him out completely. Right? And that's that's why sometimes our relationship with Jesus feels so distant and so cold. At least in my own life. Maybe you're better than I. I don't know. But a lot of times I slip into believing one of those false gospels. I start thinking it's it's about me. It's about what I'm doing well. And so if I'm believing that, naturally my relationship with him grows cold. We shut him out when we try to add anything to what he already did. And so the offer that Jesus is making here first of all is that both to the believer and to the unbeliever, if you'll come and embrace my gospel, you can have intimate fellowship with me today. You see, the other reality about this church is that they didn't idolize their wealth. Right? They, they didn't convince themselves not only this wealth would provide them the security they were looking for, but their wealth, they thought, had provided them the fulfillment and the satisfaction they were looking for. The reality is, is God's the satisfaction of looking for is Jesus Christ. It's having an intimate relationship with Him. No person's going to fill that void. No amount of stuff's going to fill that void. That big pit right in the middle of your heart that's gnawing at you is just a Jesus-sized hole. We're not going to find that satisfaction anywhere else. And the offer of Jesus is, hey, come back to this gospel. Come to me with no money. Come, with, come to me with nothing to offer. Take the gospel I have for you. And I'm going to come in and have intimate fellowship with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to know you better than anyone knows you. And I'm going to love you better than anyone loves you. That's the offer of Jesus Christ. The second promise that we see is this. Verse 21. It said, The one who conquers grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This seems like kind of a strange promise at first, or at least it didn't mean. But I think what Jesus communicated is this. We can experience fellowship with Jesus now. But there's coming a day when the deepest longings and desires of our heart will be fully satisfied, fully met when we're sitting with him forever. There's no way we can begin to articulate or understand what it's going to be like to rule with Jesus for eternity. Can't imagine what that's going to be like. But Jesus saying this, you conquer because I conquer. <coughs> How you overcome is by realizing that there's nothing in you that enables you to overcome anything. 
The way we overcome it is by washing our robes white in the blood of the Lamb. We have nothing to offer. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome because He overcame. Our inheritance is sure, it's secure, and it's kept that way. Not because of what you and I have to offer, and not because of our best efforts. It is because Jesus overcame. Jesus did everything that you and I could never do. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb alone. Church, let's stake our lives there. Let's stake our lives there. See, this church drifted into complacency, into a state of being lukewarm, half-hearted devotion to Christ. And they did it because they thought they had something to offer. See, you and I are capable of doing the exact same thing that they did. We throw our resumes in front of Jesus. We try to earn our way. And that's when we start to get cold. If we want to thrive as a church, passionately following Jesus begins in resting in Him alone for our salvation. And staying that way. And we're talking in Sunday school this morning about uh, the importance of fellowship. How fellowship is a means of grace in the Christian life. And the reality is, as Hebrews 3 tells us, that we are all tempted to drift away from the grace of Jesus. We're tempted to add to it, to substitute it for other things. And the nature of fellowship is knowing one another well enough to draw us back in and revive the gospel. True fellowship enters into one another's lives and says, hey, you need to go back to believe in the promises of God. You don't have anything to offer. You don't have anything to prove. So church, come by well Embrace the salvation that Jesus Christ has for us and embrace, embrace it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day until this life is over and we're sitting on the throne of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Let's pray. Thank you.